0: Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he put on a dress and play a girl bunny?
1: No. I, I, people give me tons of um, ideas on this one. I keep reading new, you know, psychological theories and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was under pressure I was a bit tired or I was lonely or I fell down the stairs when I was a child or whatever. <laughs> You're no picnic, all right? You're a spoiled little brat even, but under that, you're the most amazingly astounding, wonderful girl, woman that I've ever known. Party on, Wayne. Party on, girl.
0: Hi, and uh, welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. Uh, so, in our last instalment, I uh, waxed lyrical about Leonardo DiCaprio and American heartthrobs, but I mentioned we hadn't spoken about another, um, I guess, really significant heartthrob um, along the lines of the kind of men that we were talking about, and that, of course, is Hugh Grant. Well, I say Hugh Grant, Chloe says Hugh Grant.
1: Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Uh, it's the Adelaide accent thing. I, I know I sound a little bit like Alexander Downer, sometimes Alexander Downer, as he's correctly known. Um, so I would say that, you know, my my affection for Hugh Grant is deeply qualified, not only by my knowing about this, but but the fact that in researching this episode, I have had to revisit Hugh Grant's notorious 1995 sex scandal, which we'll get to in a minute. I think that, more seriously, Hugh Grant is an interesting Case study in a celebrity's redemption and the the reasons and the means by which a celebrity who finds himself embroiled in a sex scandal, for which he is entirely to blame, can actually kind of pull himself up out of that and become, you know, I guess kind of both a redemptive figure and also, you know, quite an upstanding figure in in a whole other field of activism. So we'll get to that in a minute. But of course, the immediate. I guess, kind of attraction the reason for Hugh Grant's celebrity in the 1990s is because he, he represents a kind of flattened out English poshness. He's diffident, he's endearing, he's witty, he's very English, he's kind of, you know, upper middle class, sort of bordering on aristocratic. I could go on for hours about, you know, what Hugh Grant represents in the insanely gradated um, class strata of <laughs> England, but I won't because that would be really boring. Um but it does seem to be he's a sort of figure who people continue to be infatuated by. Like, I mean, you know, this is despite the fact that men of his status and men of his privilege, men with his, you know, insanely crisp accent, they the way that they abuse that privilege is on record. I mean, hello, Prince Andrew, although he was never charming. So the question for this episode is how did Hugh Grant redeem himself when a sex scandal at the height of his celebrity in 1995 by rights should have killed his career.
0: Yeah, which is which is quite the question to be tackling, I think in 15 minutes or less. But but I guess what the point one of the points at least that you were making there Chloe is that by the middle of the decade, by 1995 and this sex scandal, Hugh Grant is Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant is extremely famous.
1: Yes, and that's largely off the back of four weddings and a funeral, which was, you know, a kind of a it kind of set the tone for a lot of 1990s rom-coms that followed and for the career of Richard Curtis who was its writer and its director I think and you know much as Leonardo DiCaprio's later career is tied up with Steven Spielberg so Hugh Grant's early career is tied up with Richard Curtis who sort of wrote these foppish endearing um, these published endearing English characters and found their perfect representative in Hugh Grant. Like Hugh Grant is often identified with these characters when really they came straight out of the mind of Richard Curtis. So by 1995, Hugh Grant is really, really famous. And he almost threw it all away because he was found on, I think it was on Hollywood Boulevard in L.A., Um, And he was charged with, to put it in the very technical terms, engaging in a lewd act with a sex worker named Divine Brown. So, of course, this had immediate repercussions for his career. Legally, it's quite interesting because Hugh Grant pleaded no contest. He was fined about $1,100 US and he was placed on two years probation. Divine Brown, meanwhile, was given a 180-day prison sentence for parole violations, and that's notwithstanding the fact that she was also fined. And they both had to attend AIDS education sessions. When I was looking at this, I was doing kind of... I was kind of going through a bit of a mental exercise in thinking what would happen if this was a scandal today. And you do feel like it would have been career-ending for Hugh Grant. And there are obviously issues that would have been raised around inequalities in in racial, racial injustices that were meted out to Divine Brown and the fact that, you know, she is... I would, I would assume, you know, with very scant knowledge of the actual details of the case, she is really a victim here. But that didn't come up at all. It was all about Hugh Grant, this tawdry sex scandal, this, you know, kind of dishevelled-looking, um, his his mugshot when, from, the, from the police file. It was entirely about
0: him. And the, and that mugshot, of course, was everywhere. But but the time where we are speaking about Chloe, as much as you said there's no social media, this also happened of course at at the height of the kind of paparazzi um, madness i guess that that surrounds uh, other british figures of course you know not the least of who is is princess diana that we've spoken about on this so so does that play a role as well do you think well
1: well yes it does and it's also really interesting if you think that think about that in light of this the ongoing trajectory of Hugh Grant's career because you know to kind of get to the end before we've even really started. He has sort of remade himself as a as a privacy campaigner and as a campaigner for press regulation and he's fiercely defensive of his private life. And you can't help but think that that has to be tied up with this incident in some way. He's but he's also not the sort of celebrity who we've spoken before about before on this podcast who manages paparazzi by and manages the media by relentlessly sharing themselves like he has actually he's actually incredibly defensive about that and i suspect that that may be maybe that's been something that's been of cost to him in some way as a as an actor
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point because, I mean, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is also like that. You know, he he is is famously very private. And as a lot of the articles that I read about him say, you know, we we actually know very little about Leonardo DiCaprio's day-to-day life, you know, as if we should or we have a right to, which again comes straight out of the 1990s. And
1: and it is really, it's quite astonishing because you feel like, in the 90s there was this sense of people feeling like they had a right to celebrities lives and that was very much mediated through the paparazzi after princess diana's death there was kind of a reckoning with that and a retreat into you know this sort of position of yeah we, maybe we should respect for, of celebrities and their right to privacy and their privacy and their right to a private life and then sort of by way of reality tv and and the kardashians we've got to a completely different scenario where it's celebrities who are offering themselves up for public consumption in an incredibly, I don't know, just a, kind of an overwhelming and incredibly profitable way. So in a sense, I guess Leo and Hugh Grant, they're kind of, they're holdovers from that moment where people actually did reject, you know, the, the kind of hyper, hyper, the commercialization of celebrities and their identities. But I want to go back. I want to go back to the immediate aftermath of the Hugh Grant sex scandal because I was watching the interview that he gave on American TV about this, and it's really interesting to watch in light of the way that famous men who've been found out for sexual misconduct often behave these days. Because Hugh Grant, he says, actually, Pete, this will be a moment for you to insert a video of oh the video, think. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Hugh Grant, he doesn't make excuses. You know, you. I think you know in life. Uh pretty much what's a good thing to do and what's a, b- a bad thing. And um, I did a bad thing. And there you have it. Yeah, cool. yeah. Okay, yeah. I
0: mean, oh, wow. So he actually just just straight up said, my bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think your tone of surprise says a lot about how different that whole situation is today. So he issues this massive mayor culpa on, on primetime TV, and he makes, but he also makes it very clear that he's been personally humiliated. He also makes it very clear that his aren't the biggest problems in the world. He talks about people who have sent him letters who are in much more sympathetic situations than he is. But at the same time when you're watching this video you think oh yeah he's he's definitely kind of weaponizing the Hugh Grant charm the you know a witty and hapless persona of this you know this this good English bloke.
0: And look I do think that english charm is particularly effective effective in the united states like you just go back to four weddings and a a funeral and hugh grant's character and and the effect that he has on the american woman andy mcdowell's character in that film you know there's a a particular appeal i think to
1: americans there well and also the effect that he has on the american film star in his real his great comeback film notting hill who was played by the other 1990s icon julia roberts like, but we can contrast you know, this behaviour, which I think is quite... You've watched the interview, and I think he's quite genuine even while he is playing to a character. He's quite sincere. But you contrast that with people like Harvey Weinstein, who has come up with a lot of excuses for his bad behaviour even while he's still pleading not guilty to criminal charges. Like... Harvey Weinstein, one of the excuses he's given for his behaviour is to say that I came of age in the 60s and 70s, I'm quoting here, when all the rules about behaviour in workplaces were different. I guess, Chloe, that kind of brings to mind a
0: a discussion that's actually um, pretty alive at the moment, I think, which is about, uh, I guess, historical judgment and, and whether we should judge people
1: by the standards of their time or not. Yeah, and this is something that comes up All the time, because obviously we're living through a moment of intense and great reckoning. We're not talking just about sexual sexual misconduct of powerful men, we're also talking, of course, about the statues that are, you know, and the the accounting for imperialism and slavery and racism in the past. Um, I thought that this Harvey Weinstein, his way of making excuses, and it kind of applies to a lot of these men, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino, who we spoke about in the last installment, they they kind of they're using a historian's trick they're contextualizing their actions as a way of asking for understanding but they're also doing that as a way of asking for forgiveness and i think a historian's response to that should always be to actually examine what sort of agency they had in that situation so harvey weinstein he might have been influenced in his you know his understanding of what was acceptable might have been contextualized by growing up in the 60s and the 70s but that, does, that doesn't mean that there weren't other thoughts and other opinions out there. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have, you know, he's an enormously powerful person. It doesn't didn't mean that he didn't have influence over his own choices. Agency matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting as well that all of the men that we are talking about are, are men who came to prominence in the nineties.
1: Yes. They came to prominence at the end of history, but and, you know, and a lot of the this behaviour was going on in the 1990s, so apparently the end of history didn't include women because, you know, we are still being forced to make history and we're still forcing people to take account for act- their historical actions. Okay, so then it's fairly clear that,
0: that Hugh Grant is kind of an, an outlier in this way, as much as he still kind of embodies a particular form of 90s masculinity. But how, how do you think kind of all these threads, Chloe, are playing out in popular culture more broadly when we're talking about masculinity in the 1990s?
1: Well, I was really struck in the last instalment when you were talking about Bruce Willis and this very classic, assertive, Ameri- all-American masculinity, which I would say is you know a bit of a hangover from the Cold War era. By the time we get to the 1990s, we do still see that sort of assertive masculinity and this, you know, and watch the kind of Tarantino inspired, aestheticized violence. But it's addressing what is, you know, really a crisis of masculinity. And this is something that's been written about extensively. So, you know, there were films like American Beauty and Fight Club that came out and, you know, sort of ultimately mystified and, you know, I, I think kind of seduced critics who made them into either, you know, award winners or cult favorites which were all about this alienate, this apparent alienation of white middle-class men from the very materialistic society of the US in the 90s that satisfied all their objective and material needs. So they go on these, you know, I think, think I mean, I would say these kind of preposterous, um, you know, soul-searching missions that mostly involve, you know, bouts of violence or um, preying on teenage girls. It's I think it's really interesting to look at these films, not you know, not in and of themselves, because I, quite frankly, I'm not that interested in them, but also as as cultural moments, because they were, like I said, taken incredibly seriously and they won lots of awards. And this was to go back to what you said in the last installment. This was about men, in a sense, reclaiming the critical attention and the popular attention that they thought had been lost in. Um, with the rise of this you know more assertive assertive femininity and you know this assertive third wave feminism i have said before i don 't like waves, but i 'll use it there um, of the 1990s they they were they were they 'd always been always been at the center of culture they 'd been displaced, and they were claiming that back
0: I guess just like um Hugh Grant never really left
1: Either. no no, he kind of like and I think hugh grant he has he 's an interesting guy because he has. He has quite a nonchalant attitude to his own fame. Like, if you read any of his interviews, he doesn't seem to take himself that seriously as an actor. He doesn't take the business of film that seriously. He just sort of pops
0: up and... Well, I mean, he's essentially been, like, trading off playing the same character for 20 years.
1: Well, yeah. Well, he has kind of. He has He has moved on. He's evolved a little bit. Um, his villain in the Paddington films is excellent. But apparently, your daughter isn't interested in them, so you might have to. Not yet; they're sit a little bit there. old for it. Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> um, yeah, so Hugh he Grant, he, after the sex scandal, he basically went on hiatus for a few years, and he came back in Notting Hill, where again he played that foppish English gentleman. But one of the a really so a really interesting thing happened, and this connects with what we were saying before about celebrity culture and paparazzi, paparazzi and press intrusion on celebrities lives so Hugh Grant was a victim of phone hacking which by a British tabloid which was a huge scandal in the UK about 10 years ago it led to the closure of one of their major uh, major daily tabloid newspapers which you know is a big deal in the UK if you know anything about that culture but following that he became a leading campaigner for press regulation and for privacy laws and it's followed from that that he's gone through something of a career renaissance and what he has done which i think says something about how clever cleverly he has positioned himself but also how sincere he is in this is that he has learnt to trade on his prior reputation whether it's as you know a pretty boy and a foppish foppish upper, upper crust english gent or as you know, the disgraced um, protagonist in a mid-nineties sex scandal. So you know, a role that he played quite recently that was really interesting, and he won a lot of awards for, was as the disgraced uh, former Liberal Party leader in the UK, Jeremy Thorpe. Okay, so perhaps unfair of me to say that he
0: he has only played the same character. Maybe that was a bit harsh. Um, Chloe, as as we wrap up, I guess can you can you tell us what? Hugh Grant means... You've got me saying Hugh Grant and not Hugh Grant. This is my evolution over the course of the episode. Um, What does he mean, I guess, for for 1990s culture and masculinity?
1: I think to really zero in on a point I've been trying to make in this instalment, I think it is really interesting how Hugh Grant really successfully has managed his own rehabilitation because I think the initial scandal says so much about the 1990s in that while it was really bad and it had some pretty serious repercussions for Hugh Grant's career, they weren't it wasn't the sort of permanent damage that I think that we would see, um, we would see happen today. I also think that the fact that he was able to kind of dig himself out of that hole through a combination of candidness, which like I said, I think was completely honest, but also an understanding of sort of the role he was assigned to play in this kind of firmament of, of um, heartthrobs in the 1990s. I think that says a lot about, about privilege and also about the ways that men can use it, um, even in what looks like the most benign ways.
0: Yeah, and I guess that, that kind of... Um connects really nicely to what I'd like to talk about in the in the next instalment of this episode, which is a, a very different kind of, of masculinity in the 90s and one that also presents itself as, um, I suppose, benign in a way when it comes to um, relations with, with women and the role of women. And that's when we talk about the rise of grunge music and the kind of particular so-called androgyny that comes with that in the 1990s. Daily Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.